the act of substitution was fully made. And, if it had been necessarily delayed for years, could that have been, but not by Stanhope's fault, still its result would have preceded it. In the place of the omnipotence, there is neither before nor after. There is only act. Pauline went out through the open door of the house, for the manor was now almost a public building of happiness, and began to make her way towards her home. Just as she left, one of the other girls, who was only then arriving for her part, had delayed her with a question, a minute matter about a borrowed pattern for a dress and possible alterations. Pauline also had given her attention, and now, walking down the road, went on thinking of it, and whether Mary Frobisher would really be well advised to move the left seam an eighth of an inch back, considering Mary Frobisher's figure. It was another thing for her, and the hang of the frock had been as satisfactory as could be hoped. But Mary, she stopped to smell the pinks in a garden she was passing, Pinks were not very showy flowers, but they had a fragrance. It was perhaps a pity they had so few in their own garden. She had once or twice thought of asking her grandmother to order the gardener to get some more, since the gardener certainly wouldn't otherwise do it. But Mrs. Anstruther was, was always so content with immediate existence that it seemed a shame to bother her about proximate existence. Pauline wondered if she, when she was ninety-seven, would be as little disturbed by the proximate existence of death as her grandmother seemed to be. Or would she be sorry to be compelled to abandon the pleasant wonder of this world, which when all allowances were made was a lovely place and had... She nearly came to a full stop. Then with slackened steps, she went on blinking at the sunlight, she realized she had been walking along quite gaily. It was very curious. She looked down the road. Nothing was in sight except a postman. She wondered whether anything would come into sight. But why was she so careless about it? Her mind leapt back to Stanhope's promise, and she knew that, whatever the explanation might be, she had been less bothered for the past ten minutes than ever before in any solitude of twenty years. But supposing the thing came, well, then it came. But till it came, why suppose it? If Peter Stanhope was taking trouble, as he was, because he said he would, there was no conceivable reason for her to get into trouble. She had promised to leave it to him. Very well, she would. Let him, with all high blessing and gratitude, get on with it. She had promised. She had only to keep her promise. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of Literature at Emmanuel College in Georgia and Doctor of the Soul. And joining me today, we have Sophie Burkhart. How are you doing, Sophie? I am doing quite well this evening. Great. 
Great. Sophie is a fellow podcaster. Check out her podcast, Beneath the Willow Tree, especially if you like the sort of topics that are covered in this show. I think you'll like her show as well. And then we have Logan. How are you doing, Logan? I'm doing very well. I'm thankful to be back on the show. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Logan edits and produces the show from deep within a dark shed-like structure located just next to the local cemetery. He's been there longer than anyone can recall, and everyone thinks it's someone else's duty to mess with him. It's really quite homie surprisingly i really have been here a long long time it's weird though i'm starting to hear like rumbles like sounds like the earth's almost moving a little bit but i'm not worried about that nothing will probably come of that yeah i think i think everything will be okay yeah that should that Um, should be just another day in the park Sent into Hell is among the best of Charles Williams' novels, so-called spiritual thrillers in which everyday decisions made by modern people hold profound moral and metaphysical meaning. The novel takes place in the fictional town of Battle Hill, where events as seemingly mundane as the rehearsal of a play or an old historian's jealousy are as supernatural and significant as the posthumous journey of a suicide or a girl's flight from her own image when she meets herself walking down the street. Battle Hill contains in itself both heaven, the true city, and hell. For these more than afterlife destinations are tendencies in the heart of every person that may be fostered or destroyed. We have all, it turns out, descended to hell. But is it possible to descend there in order to rescue others from it? As the book goes on, it becomes increasingly clear that the only true path out of hell lies through it when we carry each other's burdens. So we are in the middle of chapter six. That's where we left off last time in the middle of this like really, really important chapter entitled The Doctrine of Substituted Love. But where are we in in the larger book? What's happened so far and, and what's happened, especially in this chapter, in chapter six, The Doctrine of Substituted Love? I feel like recaps with this with this book are always so hard. I always have to, to remind myself where on earth we are and how far each different plot has progressed. Yep. As, I mean, this chapter specifically, we've sort of, we've gotten through the discussion between Stan Hope and Pauline of what this doctrine of substituted love is. And we're about to sort of like dive into the act actually happening and, and taking place before then we've, the last chapter was so eerie and creepy as we kind of first dove into Wentworth beginning. I mean, that guy has kind of already started his descent, but he's really going taking big steps into his descent into hell. And then I think, I mean, it's been a little while since we've visited sort of the suicide and Margaret. So we'll be returning to them again quite soon in their various stories. Yeah, this is such a difficult book to summarize. There is a play. And just as there are different characters in a play, so in this book, there are these different characters that we don't quite see what how they all come together yet at this point, but we know that they somehow will, right? So at the beginning, we have a play being rehearsed for written by the great poet of Battle Hill, Peter Stanhope, who's not a real guy, even though Charles Williams liked to sometimes write under the name Peter Stanhope, because Charles Williams, this is like his ideal of like what he should be as a poet, right? And we have this young woman playing a a minor character in Peter Stanhope's play. And she is encountering herself while walking sometimes, or at least her own image. And she feels very frightened by this, as I expect any of us to be like rather freaked out. Then we have a suicide who killed himself. I mean, that 
goes without saying, I guess, some time ago in Battle Hill while he was building Battle Hill up and the suicide has just kind of been wandering around ever since he died. He's not really in hell. He's not really in heaven. He's just in this sort of twilight in between place and a lot of times finds himself standing in the exact same spot, but he doesn't realize it as this guy, Lawrence Wentworth. And Lawrence Wentworth is a historian who is quite full of himself and who is really upset that this guy, Aston Moffat, who's his arch rival, it's kind of his Newman, for those of you who remember Seinfeld, has been knighted. And he's also very upset because this young woman who's playing a major character in the play written by Peter Stanhope has decided that she does not like him so much, but she likes this young guy instead. He has begun to imagine that a version of her, which is in fact like corporeal, is spending significant amounts of time with him without a chaperone. They're they're, They're straight up canoodling. They are canoodling to the extent that one can canoodle with something (laughs) that is not a person. So it's a very, very strange thing. And that's what happened in Creepy Chapter 5. Gosh, there's also Pauline, the girl who is seeing her own image. Her grandmother, Margaret Ann Struther, has had this vision of Battle Hill and the spiritual vision where she gets grasps the totality of all this and how all the pieces fit together well just real quick while you're just trying to describe descent into hell it reminds me very much of how stanhope describes the play in chapter one which i know we already covered that a few episodes ago but it's hilarious because i think it's really is so self-referential because he says it's gonna have to come together a little bit like yeah no kidding Uh, i think love it i love it when he mentions the details of the play and he sort of talks about how the plot is sort of loose it's sort of all over the place there's a chorus and then there's a, a grand duke and a grand duke's daughter who falls in love with this character and mm-hmm. then there's a chorus and then there's a singing bear so i feel like yeah. that's very similar to how you're trying to describe this into hell right now it's like yeah. well you got a playwright and then you have the overzealous director and then she's fighting with the main actress mm-hmm. and then also we also have a vagabond who killed himself he's sort of just floating around and then we have a grandmother and then we have this and then we have that it's like yeah i, ho- I sure hope this all starts coming together pretty soon <laughs> yeah yeah it undoubtedly needs peter stanhope said a final pulling together but there's hardly time for that before July. And if you're willing to take it as it is, why? He made a gesture of presentation and dropped his eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I think you made the point last episode that this is very much like a stage play in itself. Certain characters come on stage and while they're on stage, the other characters are in the back getting changed. And it's sort of the bare necessities of a stage play. But here we are seeing that same format, seeing that same structure in a novel. And yeah, it's very, now we're over here and now we're over here. And now we're with this mm-hmm. character. This book is so emotionally tense. And I think that jumping around from scene to scene, from character to character, sort of plays into that intensity. Yeah, so so that all brings us to, to the middle of chapter six, where Peter Stanhope has talked to Pauline and gotten her to tell him what it was that's been bothering her and it's that she's been seeing her own image right and that's mirrored of course by the fact that lawrence wentworth which by the way this is really a nice book for obvious names right wentworth is worth went he's kind of the character that is slowly being damned it parallels it mirrors the way that wentworth is seeing this false adela right that she's that she's also a doppelganger of of the real adela it's just with none of the real adela's like 
prickly. It's without all of her sort of realistic imperfections. It's just his idealized version of her. Yeah, we're going to get to more of that pretty soon. Pauline is terribly frightened by by her own image. Stan Hope says, hey, listen, I can take your fear for you. And so he says he will. And he says he will imagine being afraid for her. And and that is what he does. Yeah. Is there anything else we should say about that idea of the doctrine of substituted love before we continue through chapter six? I feel like it's important that time and place don't really matter. Like as long as you do the act and you substitute, you take the burden, then it can be the burden that you're taking can happen in the future, in the past. It, it doesn't matter. It's just the act itself. Yeah, I like that a lot. The line says something like, that doesn't really matter to the omnipotence. Still, that act of obedience can be used in the hands of God. That's such a cool reminder of the, the nature of God there. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we talked a little bit last time about possible theological problems with this idea, but I will say one place in which Williams really has influenced me and influenced my prayer life is the reminder that God is not bound by time. And so even if something happened years ago or centuries ago, you can still pray for people involved in that situation. And God, who is outside of time, can hear your prayers. Anyway, that's how, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily see time as being an obstacle. The fact that someone has already died, right? Um, no obstacle to praying for their salvation, right? Uh, because even if purgatory does not exist, we can still pray that in past time, God would have revealed himself to them. And even on the flip side of that, it shows the power of praying for things in the future too. Like, obviously we feel like we're, we're probably more used to that praying for things in the future, but things in the future are just as sure as the things in the past. And yeah, it's a, that was a really cool sort of eye-opening thing for me too. I like the way Williams expressed that. Uh, yeah. So two quick things. Um, I think one thing that's important to note is that unlike many of the other Inklings who are sort of creating a secondary world, Williams is not really doing that. He is giving us a picture of the way he thinks the world sort of is. The, these are some of the fundamental laws of the world. And Christianity, insofar as it is the truest expression of the way things are, right, is is going to reveal this as well, right, uh, and, and is going to have these aspects to it. So that's why you know there are, there are commands like bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, right? Totally, and I, I think that's interesting because yeah, it really does. Whether you find it as a literal, physical sort of commandment and law of the universe or not, like it does lead you like so many other Christian doctrines and Christian practices, it does lead you back to the cross. Like it really does lead you back to what the heart of Christianity was of like how Christ took on or bore our burdens of sin. Yeah, I think so. You all brought up C.S. Lewis's experience. Lewis was not part of the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, right? Like Williams was. He'd been a little, little bit involved with like the fringes of the occult before he became a Christian, right? With like Yates and all that. Part of the reason he didn't go further in that actually was because of George MacDonald, according to Surprise by Joy anyway. But in terms of Williams, once you see this in Williams, you can't unsee it anymore in Lewis. In other words, like you can see this idea of Williams kind of 
coloring most of what Lewis wrote, like most of his fiction has this element in it. We just finished up several weeks ago with Till We Have Faces, right? It's absolutely all over Till We Have Faces, this idea of taking on someone else's burden for them, right? How Oriol takes on the, the labors of Psyche for her, how Psyche takes on yeah, the- cursed, the blessed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. the sake of her people, right? Uh, it's it's absolutely just a law of reality, right? And because reality is authored by God, it's also a law of Christianity. And you know, similarly, it's in Narnia and various places. Even like I'd say, even with Tolkien, where Sam is bearing so many things for Frodo, and and I've I've noticed a lot of sort of resonances between this book and actually Tolkien's work. Who like usually people who talk about their relationship tend to say that Tolkien and Williams were not terribly simpatico, but I can still see uh, resonances across their work. But yeah, very, very much influencing Lewis for sure. Great Divorce is another one that has this a lot. That Hideous Strength for sure is basically Lewis kind of writing a Charles Williams novel that's a little bit easier to read. It's very much all throughout Lewis. Even I think like where Lewis will write things like The Weight of Glory, um, when he talks about how all the people that you see will one day either become something that if you saw them in their glorified final state, you'd be tempted to worship them or something that only appears, you know, if at all to us now in, in nightmares, right? And we are every day by the little decisions that we make, we're helping people toward one or the other of those destinations by, you know, exploiting them or loving them. But that's absolutely here as well. Probably possible to overstate how much he's influenced by Williams, but I, I very much see Williams in most of the fiction, at least, that, that Lewis wrote, as, as well as the other writings. past season of the show and just all the discussions we've had so far about Prince Caspian and sort of the questions we asked about that about like what else can be redeemed about how mythology and Greek mythology and uh, North mythology so much of it points to and Tolkien and Lewis were so and in, so ingrained with this idea of everything points back to the the real myth the super myth of Christianity the real myth you know and I find it so interesting of how with what we covered in Prince Caspian, the discussion you guys did on Smith of Wooten Major about how the world of fairy sort of points us back to this deeper reality of spiritual life and of, of Christian life. I think that's so neat that that's a theme that we found here. I imagine that's just a theme of the Inklings overall of calling us to sort of wake up from our own glazed eyes of what we see is what we get with the world. But the world is fantastic, incredible glory or incredible suffering and damnation like we'll see later in this book. But I find that so interesting. All of the Inklings stuff that we've covered this season seem to have that same call of like getting our sort of fleshly eyes and seeing a deeper reality, seeing a more vivid, more awfully good reality of what the universe actually is like. Yeah, that's well said. Can you tell I've been listening to the Inklings Variety Hour a lot recently? Yeah, yeah you sound <laughs> like an, an Inklings Variety Hour a listener for sure. Yeah, it is really interesting. Uh, it would be it'd be fun to kind of go through and catalog the different types of invisible worlds, right? That mm. that you have um, in these in these works because yeah, there's there's fairy. And then there's like the spiritual world of Williams, which is 
just they are, they all have something in common different expressions of something that is more enduring and more permanent and 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 also that puts a kind of enchantment on our own world right and in in a good way right and not an enchantment that deceives but an enchantment that awakens So you have this figure, Stanhope, who's the one in this novel who at least awakes Pauline to the, to the fact that there are like these principles at work in the world that are, you know, that, that allow you to confront fears, right? Um, even though Pauline has been having a supernatural thing happen to her ever since she was a little girl, she's processed it, not in a way that's joyful, but in a way that is, you know, just deeply fearful. So she finds herself on a walk back from the manor house where Stanhope lives, thinking about all these other things, right? Thinking about, you know, making alterations for a dress for one of the other actors, looking at, like literally stopping to smell the flowers, seeing a kitten, just thinking about her grandmother. And then she suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, I've been walking home. And I haven't even thought once about the possibility of encountering this other image of myself. It must be because, uh, because Stanhope has been taking my fear. And, and she says, supposing the thing came, right? So, so what if I didn't see my image? Well, then it came. But till it came, why suppose it? If Peter Stanhope was taking trouble, as he was, because he said he would, there was no conceivable reason for her to get into trouble. She had promised to leave it to him. Very well, she would. Let him, with all high blessing and gratitude, get on with it. She had promised. She had only to keep her promise. So this idea of a promise, right, being what alleviates her fear, right, that she's promised to leave it to him and promised to let him take her fear, that that allows her to actually leave it behind and leave it with him. So she calls him up and she's really excited and she tells him that that it worked. We find out that um, on, on page 106, she first started not liking seeing herself. When I wasn't being very good, there wasn't much money in the house. And once there was a shilling, my mother lost and then there were sweets. It was just after I'd bought the sweets that I saw it coming once. It was horrid to see it just then, but it was beastly of me, I know. So it's like tied to this guilt that she's she's associating with 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 stealing from from her mother when she's a little girl. And this is the first time that she sees this image coming toward her. So she tells this to, to Stanhope and then at the door is good old Lily Samil, who's kind of like, hey, you know, we never finished our conversation the other day. I could really help you out, right? So she's making him kind of a parallel offer to Stanhope's offer, right? Saying like, no, 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 I'm not going to offer to take your fear from you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to offer you this place of unreality where your fantasies could come true, right? Um and, uh, and she says, my dear, it's so simple. If you will come with me, I can fill you, fill your body with any sense you choose. I can make you feel whatever you choose to be. I can give you certainty of joy for every moment of life. Secretly, secretly, no other soul, no other living soul, right? And, and this is actually really appealing to Pauline. And she almost regrets losing her fear in the first place because she wants to kind of shut herself up in herself. 
but she ends up finally rejecting Lily and, and kind of rejecting her rudely. She added in a voice hard with unreasoning hostility, good night. She ran in. Quite a lot more um, happens in this chapter. Did anything else stick out to, to you all of, of all the stuff I just kind of glossed over? I think just how close Pauline kind of gets to giving in because you've had this whole incredible experience and she's so excited about it. And then boom, one conversation, it's like, she's, she's about to want to give it all up and go the way of, of death and darkness, but I'm glad she doesn't. Lily Smeal's whole, the whole conversation is, is a confusing one and very creepy. Yeah. I think it's interesting to point out how Stanhope and Pauline are sort of in a covenant now like he's asked her to sort of keep her promise he's asked her to sort of come into a relationship a covenantal relationship with him and that is such a huge theme in this book because while we see her joining the community with Stanhope and coming in and he bearing her burdens the clearest comparison is that with Wentworth and he is stepping out of community and continually isolating himself and continually locking his doors and closing the windows and it, you know even sending his servants away you know like he's stepping away by himself more and more and she is through this covenant, through this promise, it's leading to more and more freedom, more life. And uh, I think that's that's just really cool. And then obviously with here, with Lily Semal, with her promise, she herself is offering isolation. Like that's really what it is. She's offering sort of the, you won't have to help anyone ever again, you know? And that's what triggers Pauline to say, no, wait, that's the opposite of what I want. And uh, I think that's such a, a really clever, really cool picture of isolation versus community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's so key to what Williams is doing here. That heaven is the place of community where we have to deal with the rough edges of other people, right? Um, and even if those rough edges are not really in the beatific vision rough edges at all, but they feel rough to us because we're sinful, right? We, we have to deal with their reality, with other people's reality, and we have to try to take on each other's burdens. Whereas the way to hell is the way of isolation. You know, again, another another idea that appears in Lewis all over the place as well, right? Um, and uh, and and certainly is is a big big part of what Williams is doing. I remember going long ago, back in in the old days when I was in my twenties, um, going to a, a Romanian monastery and looking at a fresco of the last judgment on the, in the back of the monastery. And uh, there was an Orthodox priest there who was like kind of explaining everything in broken English. And he was pointing out the like iconography of the last judgment. And he was pointing out like heaven and hell. And he was like, look over there, see, see all those like crowded saints in heaven. I always tell my congregation that, you know, if you think it's too small in here and that you're too crowded up against people, just wait till we get to heaven because that's the way it's going to be. You know, it's, it's such a good reminder. We're made so that we bring each other into reality. And that means dealing with things that aren't made for us in the way that we already are, but instead made for made to mold us into the people that we are meant to be so that we can please, you know, the, the maker. As you're speaking, everyone was reminded of the imagery used in the Bible throughout the Bible of how the story of the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. Like it, it ends with a giant community. And uh, as you're saying of how God calls us to step into community and call others to join into that community. And by doing that, we really do reflect the, trinity god himself who is a community amongst himself which yeah it's 
it's such a complex, beautiful picture of Christianity and the, the what we believe and what we're called to do that, yeah, I, I think that's all over this book and all over the England's books overall. chapter seven, which is entitled Junction of Travelers. And here you actually start to have the characters in the play starting to have their paths run into each other a little bit more, right? So you've got literally this dead man walking, the dead man who's not given a name, who'd killed himself some time ago in what's now Lawrence Wentworth's apartment, just kind of continues walking through the city and time seems to pass quickly. It's like a time lapse a little bit. And he sees uh, new buildings sort of being erected. Interesting and important, I think, that he was himself a builder. So he himself added to the city. He is trying to get away from the light, which is becoming stronger um, and seems to be like almost sort of almost sort of solid um, in, a, in a way, uh, although maybe I'm just reading The Great Divorce into that. But um, but he's trying to get away from it. There's an encounter with Margaret Ann Struther at a window, though, um, where he actually sees her and she sees him and they speak to each other. Her kindness to him begins uh, the process of redemption in him. It seemed as if the light were spreading steadily down from somewhere away in the height. He did not positively see that any patch of sky was whiter than the rest, but he was looking for such a patch. The increase must have a center of expansion. It must come from somewhere. No moon, no sun, no cause of illumination, only sometimes a kind of wave of movement passed down the sky, and then it was lighter. He did not like it. If he had asked himself why, he could not have easily answered. It did not disturb his quiet. He was as lonely and peaceful as before. No sound was in his city, foot or voice. But vaguely, the light distracted him from his dim pleasure of imagining, imagining disappointment. His imagination could hardly, by ordinary standards, be said to be good or bad. It was a pleasure in others' anger and bad. But the anger was that of tyrannical malice, and the imagined disappointment of it was good. Some such austere knowledge the divine John saw in heaven, where disappointed hell is spread and smokes before the Lamb. But the Lamb and the angels do not imagine hell to satisfy their lust, nor do he nor the angels determine it, but only those in hell. If it is, it is a fact, and therefore a fact of joy. In that peace, which had been heaven to the vagrant, he had begun to indulge a fancy of his own. He went beyond the fact to color the fact. And he still kind of desires to be alone. He wants to get away from the light so that he can continue to imagine the people who had been cruel to him in life sort of continuing to want to be cruel to him and not getting their way, right? Um, so he's walking toward the darkness because he doesn't like the light um, because the light doesn't allow him to have these sorts of fantasies, which is a, uh, which is an interesting parallel to, uh, to Wentworth. Uh, do you all have thoughts? This description of hell is, is interesting. I'm sort of, I almost had this comparison in my head going back to the great divorce. If you have sort of the more real and the less real or the more solid and, and the less solid of, 
or bigger and smaller. And here you sort of have heaven is most certainly a fact and joyous. And then hell, there's almost this tension of if it is, then it's a fact and there's something good in that. But the fact that like people put themselves in hell and it is a place of just supreme self-deception and all it is is a fantasy in that essence, which is just like an interesting dimension, I guess, to look at hell of like heaven is the least fantastic place in the sense that it's so factual and therefore joyous compared to just the fancy, the imagination, the self-deception compounding over and over and over again to a whole place of, of people full of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know how you can not think about the great divorce when you, when you read this, right. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's so, I mean, Lewis, I, th- I think influenced by Williams throughout um, the great divorce to the point that I think, um, you know, some people read the great divorce as like a quasi universalist text, even though if you pay close attention to what it says, it's not really that, especially with like George MacDonald recanting, but, but yeah, this, this idea of hell being a kind of state of mind, right. That, that heaven is reality and hell is the way we try to shield ourselves from reality by, you know, calling to the, as, as Williams, like kind of cites over and over in this, right. Calling to the rocks to hide us and the hills to fall on us and then, and, and things like that. Right. He's trying to get away from this light eventually stopped and, and he is able to make a choice towards love, which is, which is interesting. I'm not sure exactly what Williams is doing with this guy, what his purpose is. He strikes me as such a cipher. And it's and it's interesting that, you know, Williams sort of explains he hadn't really deserved to like just like go to hell or something like that, the way some other people do. You know, he was given this chance because he'd never been able to choose before. This man had died from and in the body only because he had had it all but forced on him. He had had opportunity to recover. His recovery had brought to him a chance of love because he had never chosen love. He did not choose it then because he had never had an opportunity to choose love nor effectively heard the intolerable gospel proclaimed. He was to be offered it again and now as salvation. But first the faint hints of damnation were permitted to appear. So as he's kind of running away from, from the lights, it's saying, you know, he's, he's given the chance to turn after death and to, and to be confronted with love and, and given a choice. Do you all buy this idea that someone can be sort of poor and uneducated enough that they don't really have moral agency? It just strikes me that he's such a cipher. Williams just kind of views him as being this unwitting victim of impersonal forces who never had any agency and never was in a position to make the sorts of decisions that like Wentworth is making. In what way is this, is this compelling? And, and, and do you all share my unease with this? Or are you, are you just kind of like, well, yeah, this, this works. The fact of his suicide and him sort of seeming to, to be driven to suicide, maybe there's a notion in which you could say his suicide could be forgiven because he was all but driven to it. Like, like I can see some sort of that is one thing, but as far as the chance between salvation versus damnation, I feel like, yeah, I feel the same sort of unease that surely it's impossible for you ever to be so robbed of your will and agency just by the nature of such circumstances as that. 
to have a second chance in that sense. Especially because, I mean, he was married. So even though it sounds like his wife was awful, that still is the opportunity for you to choose to love someone, even if you aren't being loved in return. And I mean, the ultimate, like God loves us, even though we didn't love him first. So I feel like that that sort of is how it's supposed to work. (laughs) You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it works better as a literary device than a theological belief or a theological sort of statement. I think it gives Williams a, another toy to play with to sort of show his sort of idea that substituted love can reach through the centuries and reach through time which is cool and uh, it also gives such a cool imagery of having Wentworth although he's alive he's dying on the inside literally standing face to face with a literal dead man who is dead on the outside but he's still somehow alive on the inside so that's there's a lot of sort of symbolic fun I think he's having here I think it allows Williams to play a lot more with imagery and things like that but yeah I I share your guys sort of unease or sort of uh, I'm not fully grasping the specifics but you know this is literature you know you're allowed to skip over a few of the specifics this is poetry after all right I mean, to be honest, I feel worse for Wentworth than I do for this guy. And Wentworth's a creep, but like at least Wentworth is a historian and he notices things like buttons and things like this guy, this guy just, if Williams hadn't come from a lower class background himself, I'd be like, well, this is just a caricature of like lower class people sort of assuming that they don't have any kind of moral agency or, or, or whatever. But like this person, if he'd been a real person would have had attributes. Right? And this guy, his only attribute is like, he's just a, some schlub. He's, he's you know? the tramp. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just really interesting. Uh, and I, I, I don't know that I would have done it this way. And I'm sure there's some, something that I'm overlooking with, you know, the, the kind of maybe the everyman quality of this, of this ghost is accomplishing something that I, I just don't see. I mean, like he's a suicide and he had a hard marriage and those are like the main like details I have. We don't even know what century he lived in. Right. Which like, again, maybe that's, that's exactly the point. Like he's, he's supposed to be stand in for a number of dead people. Right. Uh, Possibly um, who, who maybe didn't have a chance. Um, I'm also, I tend to think that if he gets another chance, why not give one to everybody? I, I don't know. Like uh, I'm, I'm like, God can do what he wants. I'm fine with the idea that like God gives people another choice or, or whatever. I'm, I'm not really, I don't take the is appointed unto men wants to die. And then that comes the judgment like to mean like, and then immediately after that comes the judgment, right? Like m- maybe who knows, you know, who knows what exactly happens. Um, it's not really consistent with Christian tradition where you have like a devil waiting to snatch your soul and an angel or a saint waiting to snatch your soul, like in the middle, middle ages, you know, as soon as you die. But um, we don't really know exactly what things look like after after this life yeah maybe there's something to that maybe if we're just using if we can allow ourselves to use sort of broad strokes here and sort of the broad strokes of interpretation with this character but maybe he's just another symbol of god's grace of how god is giving these characters all of them second chances of redemption second chances of stepping you know taking that step out of the the road to destruction and back to the road of life because yeah wentworth he has so many opportunities to slow his walk he has so many opportunities to turn or to hold on to truth or hold on to Williams gives him so many little little opportunities to do the right thing here or make the right choice or to speak to the truth or correct the military outfits that are just not right you know just do something that's redeemable do something that's good and life-giving 
And uh, maybe he's showing that that's a grace of the Lord and giving very specific sort of choices for Wentworth. And uh, maybe he's showing that this is a grace of God for this poor tramp that didn't have any any agency in life. I think another difference even between the suicide and Wentworth is that the suicide doesn't, I mean, until here, he's sort of creating his own sort of fantasies. But until this point, he just chose to kill himself. He didn't like sink into self-isolation of fantasies. Mm, mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's even a difference that, you know, Williams is honoring in the sense of he did something he, I don't know. I mean, I don't see how suicide is ever a positive thing, but it's different than living in your own self-deception. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to put it out there though, that choosing not to correct military uniforms on the scale of sins that you choose to do is possibly a little less severe than like choosing to tie a rope around your neck and hang yourself. Hot take alert, hot take alert. I know, Goodness. I know. But you know, in, in Williams's moral sort of universe, it works, right? Because there's, there's increasingly choosing the self and becoming closed up in the self and then, you know, losing your soul, even while you still, while your body still breathes. Right. Um, uh, and he, and he's showing that, you know, we, we have these things called, mortal sins right and in, in traditional forms of christianity and that those mortal sins are a symptom of a deeper disease which is sort of the selfishness yeah i don't know i don't know like i, I still think you, you you i don't know that i agree with that but i see what i see what he's doing and i think it's cool and i think it's interesting it gives us much to ponder If you ever do see a ghost, you now know what to do. You, you look at the ghost pityingly and you say, my dear, how tired you look. And that will hopefully make the ghost want to love a little bit more and, and go towards the light um, and, and stop running away from it. In all seriousness, um, you have this final like sort of junction where uh, the ghost sees a window and the window is reflecting the light, which is really, really cool. Like he's running into the darkness away from the light, but this window is reflecting the light. And through the window, he sees this face of the saintly woman, Margaret Ann Struther, and she she sees him and she's able to have this like moment of charity towards this, towards this dead man and say, you know, my dear, how, how tired you look. Um, and at the same time, Pauline comes in to the house and she's very angry with herself after her encounter with Lilith. And at first she mistakes the dead man for her doppelganger, sees for a moment that it's not, and then doesn't see him anymore. And she is able to, you know, begin to be caring toward her grandmother um, as, as well, even as her grandmother reaches out and cares for this, for this dead man. So there's this exchange, right, of, of love. And, and then at the end of the chapter, there's, there's a kind of moan, right? The dead man moans, and it's a moan of like, wanting to love, right? And, and wanting to express something real to someone else. And we've got the silence in that place became positive with their energies and, and, and its own. The three spirits were locked together in the capacity of Margaret's living stone. The room about them, as if the stillness expressed its nature in another mode, 
grew sharply and suddenly cold. Pauline's mind took it as the occasional sharp alteration of a summer evening. She moved to go and turn on the electric fire for fear her grandmother should feel the chill. And that natural act in her new goodwill was no less than any high offer of goodness and grace. But Margaret knew the other natural atmosphere of the icy mountain where earthly air was thin in the life of solitude and peak. It was the sharp promise of fruition. Her prerogative was to enter that transforming chill. The dead man also felt it and tried to speak, to be grateful, to adore, to say he would wait for it and for the light. He only moaned a little, a moan not quite of pain, but of intention and the first faint wellings of recognized obedience and love. All his past efforts of good temper and kindness were in it. They had seemed to be lost and they lived, but the moan was not only his. As if the sound released something greater than itself, another moan answered it. The silence groaned. They heard it. The supernatural mountain on which they stood shook, and there went through Battle Hill itself the slightest vibration from that other quaking, so that all over it China tinkled and papers moved, and an occasional ill-balanced ornament fell. Pauline stood still and straight. Margaret shut her eyes and sank more deeply into her pillow. The dead man felt it and was drawn back away from that window into his own world of being, where also something suffered and was free. The groan was at once dereliction of power and creation of power. In it far off, beyond vision in the depths of all the worlds, a god, unamenable to death, a while endured and died. So yeah, there's this there's this moment in which hell itself, or the hill anyway, kind of shivers, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you all make of this? This is this is an interesting moment. This is an allusion to Christ on the cross, right? At least that's what I'm sort of getting out of this. Like, yeah, this is the vibrations of Christ dying on the cross echoing through the town. And again, we're getting into that sort of thought again of how time and space aren't exactly working the way they should, you know, like this is something happening 2000 years ago. And yet it's still this powerful wind or powerful shake reverberation through the town. There's got to be some sort of connection there about bearing one another's burdens when in Christ who bear the ultimate burden for humanity. That action is sort of reverberating through all of creation and all of creation sort of responding to it differently. I like that. I, I think I love the picture of that, of it makes Pauline feel a certain way. It makes the grandmother feel a certain way. That's what I see out of this, but I may be way off in that. No, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, there's the earthquake, right? That, that's described when, when when Christ dies, the way that's traditionally interpreted, at least at least in Dante, but uh, but elsewhere too, is that this is the moment in which Christ harrows hell, and so he descends into hell, and this is in in the creed, and he descends into hell and kind of breaks the power of hell. This this is an kind of an echo of that sort of breaking of the power of hell that happened two thousand years before, uh, when when someone chooses love, another soul is released from captivity. The mountain battle hill is a sort of like Golgotha. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of, you know, the heavenly city hill and all kinds of different hills. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, um, there's freedom that happens in, in this moment of uh, substitution and exchange of, of burdens, right? And just as Christ bears the burdens of the souls who are in hell and releases them from hell, um, at least the ones that are in limbo, right? Um, and then breaks the gates so that he can, you know, bring them out. Now that you had me thinking about it, it's like, maybe that plays with that point that we were playing with a little bit earlier ago about how every good decision is pointing someone to Christ. Every good decision, every good deed we do points others to 
community with God or a, a clearer picture of God. And maybe Williams is, there are little echoes of the cross in every good thing we do. Like there's little earthquakes, little minor tremors in every good act we do, every good choice that we make. Like you said, it sort of leads us one way, one step closer to glory, one step closer to Christ and his glory. And so, yeah, I wonder if Williams is just literally painting that picture for us, you know, making it a literal quake for these little small acts of kindness that uh, Pauline is doing for her grandmother. Like, this isn't a metaphysical quake. This is literal. Like, we're, we're, I'm going to show you how this is connected to the process of what Christ is doing in redeeming the world. Yeah. Yeah. Sophie, what do you think? I was, yeah, I was thinking all, all the same things. And I, I feel like when I read this the first time, I didn't really pick up on the notion that seems so obvious that it's that it's referring to Christ. And, and yeah, and I was also thinking of the harrowing of hell. And even just before, I think it's so such a big thing that they're always being pictured on a mountain, because that's where encounters with God always happen are, are on mountains, or even encounters with other gods and other mythologies and stuff. And I, I don't know, even like on page 123, when they're sort of all of the room and it says the room for those three spirits had become a place on the unseen mountain they inhabited a steep the rock was in them and they in it in margaret andrew there it lived it began to put out its energy of intellectual love so it feels like the rock i don't know like christ is living within margaret andrew there and it's his love going out through her i mean it even later says this holy and happy thing was all that could be meant by god it was love and power and talking about um, the submission of God to meeting these creatures' needs and all of these different things. Yeah, so I think it's it's such a deep and cool picture of Christ's work and Christ working through his people to reach other people and just a further extension of that love. beautiful um, and I think you know just as all good things emanate from God so all good actions that humans take on earth are an extension of the work of Christ right who is God incarnate right um, and who worked good in a world that resisted that good um, and and in the same way when we also even if it's something as simple as turning on the electric fire that she that she did for a grand for a grandmother right or or looking at a ghost and saying my dear how tired you look um, that those things are also extensions of the goodness that that resists uh, this sort of entropy or whatever you want to call it right of, of hell just to jump in real quick we oftentimes as humans, we sort of fall into the traps of like metaphor. And like, I think it's funny that we see that in the previous chapter of how Stanhope says that we should bury each other's burdens, like the Bible says. And she's like, well, don't you mean like sort of figuratively, right? Like praying for it and being sort of sympathetic. And he's like, yes, but also literally burying another one of his burdens. Williams is calling us to sort of push through our first sort of preconceived notions of like, well, this is what it is. This is the world we see. Just being nice is a good thing. Being kind is a good thing. Well, he's calling us to see it more literally of like being kind in Christ's name is pointing people to Christ. And it's got the ramifications of all that that includes, which is sort of mind boggling when you think about it. But yeah, he's calling us to sort of step past that first layer of understanding it as sort of like, oh, that's a nice phrase, or that's sort of a sort of surface level understanding of that. But like, let's see this as the, the reality of what this actually means, 
there's no there's nothing you can make of that except sort of be awed by it you know and sort of see it as like a more amazing picture of reality yeah it really makes the good uh it recognizes the power of the good and also makes it something enchanting that is really able to be appreciated as something in a in a grand pattern right um and and not just like kind of like well there's what's right and there's what's wrong and you do things that are right right but uh yeah the the other thing that this passage reminds me of when the dead man just kind of groans it reminds me of there's this passage in uh in Dante's purgatory someone is saved even though he didn't like go to confession or all the other things that you're supposed to do right to to be saved but someone finds themselves in purgatory but that's like part of the like you're in if you're in purgatory it's just a matter of time right but they find themselves in purgatory and on their way to salvation simply because before they died they said ma and they were trying to say mary but they didn't get the whole thing out and just based on that God saved them uh, based on that, like reaching out of their soul to, you know, to Christ through Mary, the absolute grace of that, right? That, that there's a, um, there, there's a willingness to save souls. Um, there's a, there's a, such a willingness to like the moment that there's a turning, you know, all past efforts of good temper and kindness were in it. They had seemed to be lost and they lived that, that these moments can be salvific moments. Anything else about this chapter, Junction of Travelers? I think it was funny, the mini tremor, the sort of quake that they feel, that's, I sort of made a joke about it earlier in this episode, but that is sort of like a little preface to what's coming a few chapters later. And at the end of the book, the big sort of supernatural thing that happens at the end of the book, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I think that's neat. That's a neat little tie to what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of chapter seven. Do y'all have any doppelgangers or doubles that are your favorite doppelgangers or doubles in other kinds of media, whether it's movies or television shows? And listeners, we'd love to hear from you too. Feel free to let us know what yours are. I tried to rack my brain and see, think of what examples of doppelgangers I've seen recently or seen in general. The, the main one I could think of was Back to the Future 2. When Marty McFly goes back, back to the past, and he's sort of retracing his steps from the first movie, and he ends up seeing himself a couple times, and there's a couple of near misses. And I thought, well, that sort of counts. But then I realized, oh, wait, Biff does the same thing. So like an, an old Biff and a young Biff sort of scheme together and try to steal the, the sports betting book. I think that's got to be a classic favorite of mine. I'm sure you can sort of weave some sort of story of salvation and damnation out of that story. But yeah, maybe that's next episode. When we do our Back to the Future Inklings podcast. <laughs> yes. Oh, that day should come. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the thing that gets the closest to this treatment of doppelgangers when uh, Jennifer sees herself, uh, you know, and they both faint um, in, yeah. uh, in, in, in 2015. But uh, that's yeah, just a, that's a nice narrative device to get Jennifer out of the picture, obviously. But it is <laughs> it is fun, too. Yeah, I would probably do the same. Uh, Sophie, can you think of any? I could only think of, of one more this time. Um, 
Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I mean, it's not like a super exciting doppelganger because they have to avoid seeing themselves or they'll go crazy. But I just really like it. That's like one of my favorite Harry Potter books. That's a good one. Yeah. What about you, Chris? What do you have? What, is, oh, what are some of your favorite doppelgangers? Man, I I wrote this question and I did not prepare for it. So <laughs> let me rack my brain really quick. And if I can't come up with something in like 30 seconds, uh, That's I'll, okay. give, I'll give up the chase. Um, so let's see. Good doppelganger movies um well while you're thinking i just mm-hmm. like to imagine there's plippers probably dozens if not thousands of characters in the soap opera world i don't watch soap operas and i don't know anyone who does anymore but i'm quite sure that storyline's probably been used probably every couple of years just to keep the storylines going of like rico no i'm not rico i'm jonathan and he's like rico with a mustache or something it's like oh my twin from my other former life oh my god gosh you're back and i'll have to play some uh, dramatic soap opera music here just to sell the point but yeah I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of doppelgangers in soap opera land too yes okay i thought of one there you really don't have to look far they're they're kind of everywhere but um but there's a uh, uh there's a movie i just saw everything everywhere all at once Oh, yeah. Where a woman is given the ability to access other versions of herself from parallel universes. Um, And it's actually like, I mean, it's definitely working with a very different moral framework from what Williams was working with. But there are some similarities and it does come down to love. And yeah, there's a... I don't know if she meets herself and if the characters meet themselves so much as they kind of access other versions of themselves across like an infinite number of timelines. Yeah, it's a uh, very strange and, and fun story. The, the, the runner up would be Charlie Kaufman's adaptation. Nicholas Cage plays his own twin brother and uh, and and Nicholas Cage is is the Charlie Kaufman character and his twin brother is the guy who's writing all of these like best-selling novels and Nicholas Cage is like well you know I don't want to strain credibility um, and, and and he comes to find out that the reason that his vision of reality is so boring is because he never actually tries to take any risks and uh, and his twin does and that's why his twin writes better fiction than him. If you want to do sort of uh, self-image doppelgangers, you could go into the world of like Fight Club maybe mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Brad, oh Brad, man not to spoil that movie from 20 years ago but that sort of whole idea of brad pitt's character and edward norton's character sort of being tied together how that materializes changes in both of those characters lives yeah uh, yeah that that might be a fun exploration one of these days too yeah absolutely there's also the show community with with the with the timelines what's it called the worst timeline the community. the darkest timeline oh it's so good i heard that yeah yeah, so this is this is a, a device, but of course what Williams does with it is uniquely Williams. With that, listeners, thank you for joining us on this exploration of these uh, this chapter and a half of, uh, of Williams. So uh, I want to thank Logan and Sophie so much for joining us. Please join us again. Yeah, with that, if you see a ghost, maybe have a little compassion. So thank you all. Enough with the hot takes, Chris. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
all-blessed encounter full of joy and scheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.